It's Tuesday, September 15th in Los Angeles. I'm Mo Kelly, in for Oscar Ramirez, and this is The Daily Dive. Oracle may have won the bidding war over TikTok, or at least that's what's being reported, although few specifics are known. That's important because it remains unclear whether the sale will be enough to avert the ban on operating in the U.S. threatened by President Trump. Axios technology editor Kyle Daly joins us to provide insight on what happens next. Then, as fires rage largely out of control in California and Oregon, it's good news, bad news, with the strong winds which both aid in improving air quality and assist in further spreading the flames. Thomas Fuller, San Francisco Bureau Chief for the New York Times, will have an update on the fires and the prospect of further federal intervention. And finally, as the U.S. approaches 200,000 deaths and millions more hospitalized in the fight against COVID-19, the bill is coming due, much to the surprise of many under the belief that COVID-19 treatment would be paid for by the federal government. Robbie Whelan, correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, will break down who is responsible for which costs and to what degree. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We did get a proposal over the weekend that includes Oracle as the trusted technology partner with Oracle making many representations for national security issues. Uh, There's also a commitment to create TikTok Global as a U.S. headquartered company with 20,000 new jobs. Joining us now on the program is Axios Technology Editor Kyle Daly. Kyle, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for coming on. You know, Oracle has won this bidding war for TikTok, but what do we know about either the terms or scope of the deal from what you can tell at this point? So not a lot, uh, which is kind of where we are right now. So Microsoft, for the last several weeks at least, had been favored to win this, as you say, bidding war to take control of TikTok's U.S. operations. At one point, Walmart became involved and you're sort of teaming up on at least the financial side of it. And then the winds kind of shifted over the weekend. And as it turned out, ByteDance, which is TikTok's parent company in China, went with a proposal from Oracle instead. And it's not, from what we can tell, an outright acquisition. There may be you know, some sort of minority stake involved, but the way it's being framed is trusted technology partner. And what that is, is not really clear right now. There is a deal on Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin's desk. He and other administration officials are reviewing that right now. We'll present it to the president probably later this week um, because TikTok, if there's not a deal in place, gets banned uh, come Sunday. Now, there will probably be legal challenges to that if it comes to that. But, you know, nevertheless, there's a ticking clock here. Um, And so, you know, Right now, we're sort of grasping in the dark. This is sort of a strange situation where it's it's a, a deal that's not quite a deal, and we we just don't know a lot yet about the terms of it. Why do you think there has been this specific focus on TikTok as opposed to other companies like Tencent or Huawei, which have been around longer and have acknowledged ties to the Chinese government? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, as you know, TikTok is owned uh, by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company. And, you know, China's a command economy. Um, it's, it's not a 
controversial statement to say that Chinese corporations are, are sort of intermingled with uh, CCP, the ruling party there. You know, Beijing has a lot of control over what companies can say and do. Um, and certainly when we're talking about tech companies, uh, at least domestically, they have pretty expansive surveillance powers. Um, so there has been a focus in, in the U.S. on sort of trying to push back, at least on Chinese technology, both hardware and software, in American systems. You mentioned Huawei. The Trump administration has been trying to kind of fence them out increasingly. Huawei network equipment is not going to be U.S. 5G networks. The government's trying to encourage other companies to follow suit. But yeah, you know, the Chinese economy has, has grown. The Chinese tech economy has grown. And there are some of these major multinational corporations that are operating throughout the world, including in the U.S. So there's sort of this mixed response to that in the U.S. You mentioned Tencent as well. That they own a whole bunch of stuff. They invest in U.S. tech companies, they sort of have their fingers in a lot of pies, but they also run something called WeChat, which is it's sort of like WhatsApp, but it includes this whole vast array of applications, commerce platforms, social media. This is really widely used in China. And at the same time that the Trump administration is looking to potentially ban TikTok, it's doing the same for WeChat. And that's flying a little more under the radar. So there is sort of an overarching push there. One thing that makes TikTok a little confounding is that there's no particular evidence that any TikTok user's data has been properly accessed by Beijing. TikTok is, is operated as sort of a separate parallel company under the ByteDance umbrella. Their servers in the U.S. and Singapore, they don't actually send data to China. So there is a risk that Beijing could Bigfoot ByteDance leadership and compel them to turn over TikTok data. But more than that, there's sort of this broader geopolitical thing. I wonder whether there is any type of dots which can be connected from what's going on with TikTok right now and the larger trade agreement, which is still being hashed out with the Chinese government. Is there anything that we can connect here or should try to connect? I don't know that there's anything super direct. I think that because the trade talks with China have not necessarily gone as well as President Trump may have hoped, the administration is now sort of looking to other levers to exert power against Beijing. But it doesn't fit neatly into the conventional trade war discourse. He is Kyle Daly, Axios Technology Editor. Thank you for coming on today, sir. Thank you so much for having me. It's really hard for all of us to wrap our heads around the devastation that these fires have caused and the pain and the suffering that so many Oregonians have endured over the past few days. Joining us now is Thomas Fuller, San Francisco Bureau Chief for The New York Times. Thank you for coming on today. I'm all. How are you? I'm doing all right. All things considered, stronger winds could help improve the air quality, which is abysmal right now, but also it provides, pardon the phrase, fuel for the fires which are going on all over the West Coast. It seems like a catch-22 situation, does it not? So I'm in Oroville right now, which is right on the edge of the fire. The winds haven't picked up just yet, but I'll tell you what the real catch-22 is. So these winds this week are supposed to be coming off of the Pacific Ocean. 
And usually those winds would kind of clear the air. The problem is, the meteorologists tell us, that for the past week or so, the winds have been going in the opposite direction, and they've pushed smoke over the Pacific. And so that smoke is sitting there, and now it's coming back to us. So we're not getting new smoke, we're getting old smoke. So that's one problem. And of course, the other problem is for firefighters. You can imagine if they're used to fighting a fire with winds coming in one direction, and then suddenly they're coming 180 degrees from the opposite direction, then they have to move people around, redeploy. So these aren't the monster winds that really have wreaked havoc in the last few years. We were talking about winds at somewhere around 15 to 30 miles an hour, but that's enough to reinvigorate some of these fires. I would say more acreage is burning here in California, but it seems more people are being displaced in Oregon. Is that accurate? And is that a trend continuing as you see it? I think that is accurate. I mean, we have more than 3 million acres here burned in California. Oregon has around a million acres. Now, people around Portland are being threatened. And so we don't have that same kind of population center that the population density, our fires are happening more in remote areas. We have, for instance, the town of Berry Creek near Oroville, which was flattened by fire. We have sort of more remote forested communities, whereas in Oregon, two communities right along I-5 were uh, wiped out. And the threat around Salem, the threat in the suburbs of Portland is alarming. California as we make the distinction and differentiation between California and Oregon, California deals with fires on some level each year, but this year particularly seemingly is exponentially worse. Are there any readily identifiable reasons that we can point to, or is it just a confluence of events and circumstances on this one occasion? We certainly had those freak lightning storms in August that started us off on the wrong foot. That ignited hundreds of fires. And many of those fires still burn today. So that was very different from last year. Other than that, we've had a very hot summer. We've had these heat waves that have really desiccated the vegetation. And, you know, as, as, as someone who lived through them up here in Northern California, it was certainly some of the hottest temperatures that, you know, I've experienced here. Going forward, since you talk about the specific circumstances and factors which impacted this particular fire season, are we possibly, if I can find some good news in this, are we possibly on the downside of this fire season as temperatures begin to cool? Traditionally, the most dangerous fires come with the Diablo winds, come with the very strong winds in the in, in, you know mid to late fall in September, in October, in November, even though the temperatures are cooler, it's the winds that really propel the fires and those we haven't seen yet. So we don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks, but certainly if we look at past years, the most devastating, most deadly fires have been in the weeks and months to come. The president is making an unscheduled visit today. The politics of the visit aside, in a federal management sense, what is it a president or federal management can do to help alleviate this situation? Well, you know, everything is polarized in our country. Even the explanation for wildfires 
the left. The Democrats say that climate change is the biggest driver, and Trump has not acknowledged uh, the role of climate change, at least not recently, in the fires. And he talks about sweeping the forest floor and forest management. And both are true. Uh, You know, the forests are much thicker than they have been in the past, certainly than they were before Europeans arrived in this part of the world. And the uh, climate is changing as well. You have both of those working in concert. The federal government owns somewhere around 60%, a little less than 60% of the forest land in California. So certainly if forest management is something that needs to be changed, reformed, it's the purview of the federal government. He is Thomas Fuller. San Francisco Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Mr. Fuller, thank you for coming on the Daily Dive today, and thank you for all that you're doing to keep people informed. Thank you. So it's almost as though the federal government and the private insurance industry have set up a system of something that looks like universal health care only for one illness. Joining us now is Robbie Whelan, correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Almost 200,000 Americans are dead due to COVID-19 in just the United States. Millions more have required some level of care with hospital stays ranging from hours to months. Patients are paying large out-of-pocket fees despite a federal safety net, which was set up to avoid such situations. What was supposed to happen and what has happened relative to COVID coverage? Well, at the beginning of the pandemic, the federal government set up a system that was supposed to kind of make sure that nobody got any large surprise bills for these unexpected medical costs that they have to pay out of pocket. And they did that by giving about $175 billion. Congress authorized this money to what was called the Provider Relief Funds. And these funds were meant to sort of offset the high costs that hospitals and other providers might have for treating people who got the disease. At the same time, the private insurance industry stepped up and sort of across the board, the big insurers all agreed to waive cost sharing with patients. So what that means is when you, you know, every year when you meet your deductible after that point, you know, any care you get in a hospital under normal circumstances, you've got to pay some percentage, 10, 20, 30%, something like that. And all of those agreements are are waived and the insurers are covering 100% of costs after deductibles were met for private insurance holders for COVID-19 only. That's the only illness that is covered in this way. And so it's almost as though the federal government and the private insurance industry have set up a system of something that looks like universal health care only for one illness. So that was the goal. And so far, it's gone fairly well, but there are obviously cracks in the system as there are in any system. And, and some patients are still vulnerable to big unexpected costs. Okay, let's drill down on that. Let's say I'm a person who's obese. I have uh, comorbidities, as they say, high blood pressure, diabetes, and then I go to the hospital and I'm also diagnosed with COVID-19. How does that person know or any person know whether such a delineation will be made that his treatment is going to be COVID related and covered? For starters, if you have a positive COVID-19 test that's administered in a hospital, then you automatically will be billed under the billing codes related to COVID-19. So no matter what other complicating conditions you have, if you have a secondary infection or if COVID starts attacking more than just your lungs, it also can attack the heart, the kidneys, and other organs. 
whatever it may be, as long as you have that diagnosis, positive test for COVID, you're going to be protected by the various protections that have been put in place. Now, the bigger distinction is not whether or not you have comorbidities or whether or not you have any other condition. The bigger distinction is what your insurance coverage is. So we tried to look at this in terms of kind of the four most common profiles for insurance coverage in the U.S., and I can go through them if you'd like, but um, they're generally speaking people who have good private insurance to their employer, people who are uninsured, no coverage at all, and then people who are on either Medicare, the federal insurance program that's most commonly used by, by older Americans, or Medicaid, which is the one mostly used by low-income Americans. So how you're covered and what sort of plan you have is going to be the biggest determinant of how much you pay. And the way it breaks down is basically if you have good health insurance through your employer that's private. You're going to pay probably almost nothing, close to nothing. There may be some out of so some outpatient costs, like going to a clinic for dialysis related to a kidney problem stemming from COVID, or maybe some prescription drug co-payments that you might have to pay your pocket. But generally speaking, these big bills that people get in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, the patients are not being asked to pay very much of those. Then we go to the uninsured. The uninsured as well paradoxically, are pretty lucky in the situation because the CARES Act that Congress passed in March mandates that if you're uninsured and you go to a hospital, the hospital is not supposed to charge you. They're supposed to go to the federal government and say, look, here's how much we spent on this COVID patient. We would like to be reimbursed for that from this patient, uh, the provider relief funds. And that usually happens. But one of the main hurdles to that is it's a mountain of paperwork. Imagine you've gone through this horrible illness. You've had weeks in the hospital and you might have lost your job at the same time. One of the most common symptoms of COVID-19 that persists for a long time is called brain fog, where people have persistent confusion and forgetfulness. Under those conditions, it's very tough to ask a patient to fill out all this paperwork and make sure that they get taken care of. So the resources are out there for the uninsured, but they have to sort of take things into their own hands, which I know can be very difficult for a lot of patients. You kind of hinted at it. I guess an adjacent conversation to be had as I close our conversation is the larger universal healthcare debate. How much, if at all, is this COVID-19 coverage being used as a template or even a test case, dare I say, for how universal coverage could be used or implemented here in the U.S.? I'm not sure that the federal authorities who and, and the lawmakers who drafted the CARES Act were thinking about it exactly that way. What I do know is that the effect has been something like a universal healthcare system for one disease. And the real worry, and this is where you could think about it kind of as a test case, the real worry is that the federal funds that have been authorized are not going to be enough to get us past a possible fall surge in cases. So if we don't have a vaccine by the end of the fall, and if we do see another big second wave of cases, then the federal government funds that have been allocated for this might simply run out. And at that point, we'll have something of a test case because we'll be able to see, look, here's one particularly costly disease to treat. And we tried to treat it largely with public funds. And here's how, how long it took. Here's how fast those funds ran out. And so that will be sort of a test case. Because you can imagine, you can imagine and extrapolate from there, if this is how much it costs and how long the funds lasted for one illness, COVID-19, you can imagine how much more quickly they'd run out for every single disease that affects Americans. This conversation is seeming like it's just beginning more than anything. He is Robbie Whelan, correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Mr. Whelan, thank you for coming on today, sir. Thanks for having me once again. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories you are interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Mo Kelly in for Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>